0: for all coming. Uh, This is a uh, sort of a national security studies seminar, but I owe it all to John Mueller, who invited Bear uh, Brown-Mueller to come visit with us, and we're really glad he said yes and that he would come. Um, Bear is a graduate of the University of Michigan. Uh, He's currently associate professor in the Department of Government at Harvard. He's also a faculty associate at the Weatherhead uh, Center for International Affairs and at the Davis Center for Russian studies uh, at Harvard. His interests include the sources of war and conflict, especially uh, political methodology, in which he's made some very important uh, contributions in statistical modeling. He's also studied international relations theory, particularly systemic theories, which is what he's gonna talk about uh, today. And also, has studied Russian affairs, and especially the relationship between belief systems and foreign policy behavior. something I'm also very interested in. So, Bear, it's great to have you here. Hold forth as
1: you'd like. All right. I haven't even said anything. That's great. (laughs) Um, Thanks, all of you, for coming. Uh, You've caught me, actually, at a particularly good time uh, for this project. Um, I have some interesting sort of preliminary results, but nothing is carved in stone. I haven't... uh, I've noticed that when people publish something, immediately they feel compelled to defend it much more forcefully. Uh, So at this point, this is a pre-published work and I'm sort of in the middle of thinking about it and rethinking it, so any input that you've got uh, at this stage would be very helpful to me. Um, I usually sort of preface this talk by noting that if you look in uh, the... uh, contract of a junior faculty member at Harvard, you'll notice that one of the requirements is that you commit at least one act of unmitigated hubris while you're uh, in residence at the university. Uh, when I said this at Columbia, Eric Gartsky said, "You know, if you look farther in the contract, you have to have significant progress toward a second act of unmitigated hubris. <laughs> um, this, I, I hope, will be about as unmitigated as it gets uh, for me. What I'm trying to do today is to lay out a new systemic theory of international politics. And I I should put new in quotes because here I really am uh, standing on the shoulders of giants even more than is usually the case in uh, the work that all of us do. Um, What I'm trying to do is to put together the best elements of a variety of different traditions and make them into a sort of cohesive whole Um, So let me first sort of preemptively address some of the reactions that I often get to this endeavor, uh, and then I'll get to the theory itself and and the results, and we'll work through those. So one of the first reactions that I get, and this, I will admit, tends to come mostly from people who work in the rational choice tradition, is, oh, God, not more stuff about paradigms. Please, you know. Uh, And my first reaction sort of was what do paradigms necessarily have to do with systemic theory? Now granted, there's a substantial correlation there, but it's not necessarily the case that uh, a systemic theory automatically implies that I'm gonna be talking about paradigms. Um, My second reaction, I think, is that even if you don't like paradigms, insights from paradigms tend to be pretty hard to avoid Even if you're not at all a fan of realism, it's pretty hard not to think that power matters in some ways. Um, I think in the absence of realism, Bob Powell's book would have to be entitled In the Shadow of Something, But We're Not Sure What. Uh, So the bottom line, I think, is if systemic theory is so closely associated with paradigms in your mind that one or the other or both of them uh, gives you a rash, Then, just whenever I say systemic theory, substitute in your mind general equilibrium theory, uh, and we'll be fine. In my mind, there's not actually a significant difference between the two. So, another reaction that I get um, well, isn't systemic theory just, well, you know, bad? And I've had actually the full gamut of experiences on this, uh, in particular relating to Ken Waltz's book. Uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago where Waltz's 1979 book was uh, studied with the intensity of sort of Talmudic scholarship. I mean, I I remember a teaching assistant coming in and showing me his copy of Theory of International Politics with you know, underlinings in different colored pens. You know, I've read this thing six times, and each time I get something new out of it, and I, I sort of thought, you know, is that the King James edition, or is that... Um, then I went to Michigan, where apparently the way that you use Waltz is you cite him when you're putting an aggregate correlates of war power variable into your additive statistical model, and that's about it. Um, and then I went to Harvard, where people think Waltz was an absolutely... Uh, terrific uh, foundation for Bob Cohen's later work on regimes. <laughs> so a lot of people have a lot of different perspectives on the theory of international politics. Um, as to the correlates of war crowd, or the, the peace science crowd, I, I attended a, a uh, uh, talk once, or a, uh, I think it was a roundtable, at a conference entitled It's the Dyad Dummy. And J. David Singer had put this together, and his point really was that dyadic theories are the way to go when you're doing quantitative international politics, that other theories, uh, in particular systemic theories, don't really perform very well. And the problem with that assertion is that there aren't a whole lot of systemic theories that are tested in among the, the uh, peace science crowd. So what that tells us really is not a whole lot, except perhaps that more people need to study, need, need to focus more on systemic theorizing and try to get a better handle on what makes it goes go together. The basic philosophy that I'm sort of trying to follow here is that the system really consists of, an international system consists of parts that we've all studied separately. And what we need to try to do is put them together in a way that makes sense. So that's what I'm gonna try to do So why do systemic theory, or what's wrong with dyads? Um, And here, well, I'll tell you a brief story. I was giving a graduate oral exam at Harvard, and when it came my turn to ask the graduate students some questions, I said, uh, uh, so you read Theory of International Politics? And the guy rolled his eyes and said, yeah, you know. And that reaction sort of made me stop, and I looked at him and said, why? And there was this long silence, and he said, what do you mean, why? You know, and I said, why did you read Theory of International Politics? And he said, because you made me read Theory of International Politics. I said, well, did you read everything that I made you read? No. Well, okay, why did you read this? And he said, well, you know, everybody else in IR reads it. So I found myself you know, dangerously close to asking a Harvard graduate student, well, if everyone else jumped off a bridge, <laughs> would you do that too? And that, you know, that was about the level, of, that, that was I think about the high point of his answer to that question, it was terrible. So as I was walking out of the exam, one of my senior colleagues turned to me and said, why do you guys read that thing anyway? I've always kind of wondered. And the answer that I gave then and that I still believe is that really, the international system is a system, just like the solar system. And if you want to understand how it is that states interact, you can't really look at them in isolation. The big lesson that I've uh, drawn from my reading of the work of game theorists is that the dyad is more than the sum of its parts. that you really have to think about strategic interaction in the context of two states. You can't just think of them as individual states. By the same token, a system is more than just the sum of the dyads that make it up. Um, the problem is that so far not many people in the, in the quantitative IR tradition in particular have taken a really serious shot at understanding it. There have been some, and I cite them in the paper, uh, but it's a very, very small minority uh, compared to the number of studies of dyads that come out on a yearly basis. Um, why is that? Well, for those of you who are regular watchers of Saturday Night Live and saw it after, I think it was the second or third uh, presidential debate, the, uh, you know they asked the guy who was playing President Bush a question, and uh, his response was, well, it's hard. It's hard work. You got to come in and work on Saturdays, you know that kind of thing. Um, it is hard, <laughs> and the usual way to do it in my crowd is just to toss an aggregate realist variable into an additive equation, and you know, say you're testing a systemic theory. Um, heaven help us if we ever get an aggregate constructivist variable, because it'll be thrown in there too, uh, without any sort of theoretical uh, justification. That doesn't mean, all of this is not to say that it's the dyad dummy, as Singer put it. It means that we need to think a little bit more about systemic theory. So let's start off with a few definitions. Now, I'm not trying to say anyone else is right or wrong here. These are really ontological issues that hinge on usefulness more than anything else. Um, and in my opinion, these are just the most useful ways to think about the system when you take this particular cut at it. Uh, the actors in this states are the actors in this theory are states, um, and states are aggregate units, which i 'll get to in just a minute. Um, for most scholars, uh, structure consists of distributions of, of relative unit attributes across the system, right? uh, for example, the distribution of material capabilities, the distribution of ideas. Um, the problem is that technically anything that 's measurable at the unit level can be thought of as a distribution. So uh, you're left wondering what exactly constitutes a a part of the structure of the system and what doesn't. Um, My sense is that structural elements must be seen as constituting the environment within which states interact, which I think is another way of saying that effects can't be reduced to the unit level. Now that leaves us open really to a wide variety of things. I'm not, I don't have any theory of why it is that the constituents in states are going to find one dimension of the system or another to be very important and very salient, right? And the reason I put uh, distribution of things that matter to states uh, and put power ideology and nutmeg Right? is that during the course of the spice wars, everybody got very excited about the distribution of nutmeg. Um, now, there was an instrumental reason for that. They thought it cured the plague, but for a while, pound for pound, it was more expensive than gold. Um, and that was a big deal to them. And I'm not going to rule out the possibility that next month or next year there will be another uh, analog to nutmeg that shows up as you know the most important thing in the interna- international system. I don't know. Um, all right. So the requirements of a systemic theory are, the basic requirements are two, that states have to shape the structure of the system, and the structure of the system has to have an impact on the behavior of the states. Uh, Walter Karlsnias pointed out that these two requirements lead to a third requirement, which is that time has to be explicitly incorporated into the theory. I mean, this has to be a dynamic theory, it can't be static. Uh, unless these, unless you really believe that these effects are totally simultaneous, which I think most people don't. Um, so what you have is sort of a causal relationship that goes in two directions over time. Right? Uh, so how am I going to do these things? Well, the basic idea uh, is what I what I'd call ordered complexity. There are a variety of ways to try to get at uh, relationships like these. Um, these the, the approach I'm going to take is a complex deductive model that's derived from theory. It's similar, uh, in a way, to two-level games, where you sort of say, all right, we know what happens inside states, we know what happens between states, let's put those two, two things together into a model, right? And we'll try to capture some of the complexity of interstate rela- relations, except it's systemic rather than dyadic. Um, a couple of approaches that it's unlike are agent-based models where you have very simple actors and you look for complex emergent properties. Um, It's also unlike the approach of uh, Beck, King, and Zeng in their piece on, you know, uh, not too grandiosely titled, you know, The Problems with uh, IR Theory, Um, or The Problems with the Study of International Relations, where they essentially say, look, relationships among variables in IR are highly complex and contingent, and so what we need to do is uh, grab a whole bunch of variables and throw them into a neural network model and look at what comes out in the end, right? Right. I mean, it's entirely a-theoretical, very much sort of let-the-data-speak approach. Um, so I would sort of situate this work more toward the two-level two game end of the scale than toward either of those. Um, it's basically an attempt to model complex interactions in a way that's both parsimonious and, and deductive. So, the nested politics approach. Um, the system consists of a few things. Uh, distributions of good that comp- goods that comprise the international security environment. Uh, goods here are shorthand for unit attributes. This is a structure. Um, states here are really... C- yes? Fair. I deliberately shift from no. Should I?
2: So what should we be reading there? we things that matter, things states, or we be that, now, the goods that,
1: that of? Um, I think the way to read things that matter to, to states is things that matter in regard to international security. Things that they themselves define as relative to their security. Um, The constituent, well, states are a a straightforward preference aggregation device. This is straight out of the, um, uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Constituents are what a lot of people would call the selectorate. Uh, but I don't because I hate that word. Um, so uh, it's just my my aversion to smarmy neologisms. <clears throat> but if you if you see constituents, you know you can think selectorate. There's not a significant difference there. Um, constituents are, I guess you could say, very thinly rational. In the sense that they maximize something. And it's something like utility, but their utility is made up of whatever they think it's made up of. I'm completely agnostic as to what they maximize utility over. Um, you could even think of, if you think of sort of the logic of appropriateness rather than the logic of consequences, you could think of them as maximizing appropriateness if you want, it doesn't really matter. Um, they're also, they don't know very much in this model, about the outside world, I mean, ironically, they're rather thick, um, in a sense. But the upshot is that they they do engage in maximization behavior. But the so, essentially, I'm adopting the methodological part of rational choice theory without uh, without adopting the theoretical part, um, which people might complain about, but seems to me to make sense. So the actors are composed of the constituents plus the state. Um, Now, how does this work? What's the process by which politics actually happens in this system? Uh, The constituents look out at the world, and they see that it doesn't really match the world uh, the way they would want it to be. They look out there, and they say, I want the balance of power to be a certain way, but it isn't. So they complain to the leadership, and the leadership tries to fix it. Now, before we go on to the leadership fixing it stage, there are a couple of things I should mention about the constituents in terms of, when I said a little earlier, they don't know much. I tried to specify a little more carefully what exactly they don't know. One thing that they face is what's called model uncertainty, uh, which basically means they haven't read the theory chapter of my book. Uh, They don't know how this entire model works. And if they did, writing the book would be rather redundant. Um, Second, they also face parameter uncertainty, or what's sometimes called brainerd uncertainty, meaning they're not entirely sure how much of an impact their actions are going to have on the outside world. Um, You could also uh, say that in a different way, which is they haven't read the empirical chapters of my book. Um, but even if they had read the empirical chapters of my book, there are standard errors around all of the uh, parameters. So, you know, even if you had read it, swallowed it whole, and, and believed every word of it, uh, there still would be parameter uncertainty that these people are face. Um, both kinds of uncertainty, I argue, basically are much, much worse for other states than they are for your own state. You have a much better idea of the impact that your actions are going to have on uh, the international system than you do of uh, uh, the, uh, the impact of other people's actions. So the result of all of this, when you boil it down, is policy caution. Right? You don't get an attempt in sort of a uh, purely rational expectations way. You don't get the leaders sort of getting together and saying, all right, I tell you what, my constituents want this, your constituents want that, let's jump to equilibrium and you know, leave it all behind us. Uh, in a very sort of Churchill-Stalin manner. We'll divide Eastern Europe in the following ways and, you know, let's let's go home. Um, you don't get that happening, and if you do get it happening, you don't get it, get it succeeding because uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about where you actually would end up once this policy of sort of partial adjustment takes place. Um, leaders' actions, uh, once they've heard from their constituents, have an impact on the state of the world. They change the distribution of, or distributions of goods in the system. Uh, and in effect, that changes constituents' demands in the next round, okay? So what you get is this cycle where agents act to alter the structure, and the structure compels the agents to act. Um, and the way it's worked, and the reason I've, the way it works, and the reason I've called it kind of nested politics is that it uh, it has, an, it, it's driven, Politics are driven by the nested structure of political authority within the system, where you have individual autonomy uh, nested within domestic hierarchy, nested within international anarchy. Um, I'm not entirely t- happy with the title, and if other people have suggestions, I'm at this point again still open. So, what are the exogenous variables in this setup? Can we see the, yeah. Um, the first part is constituents' worldviews, um, which if you, if you want to put a label on, and if you really are a fan of paradigms, you could call the constructivist or liberal part, although it doesn't uh, have all of the content that you might expect from either of those traditions. Um, the point here is that identities and interests are constructed by the actors themselves, and I'm agnostic as to how they do that, just as I'm agnostic as to how changes in realized power happen. I don't have a model of uh, uh, you know, anything like um, domestic political development here, um, so, and similarly, I don't have a model of how it is that identities and interests form. You could, um, I'll mention, and I'll come back to this later on, you could add that to the model in fairly straightforward ways. And I may end up doing that in some of the case studies that look like they'd like be particularly appropriate for that kind of revision. But I just didn't want to put anything like that into the sort of general model that I'm going to use to test 200 years worth of data. Um, the second part is really the public choice part. Um, which is a sort of probabilistic voting, a vanilla probabilistic voting model, um, a la Person and Tabellini, uh, which drives leaders toward the mean of the preferences of their constituents. Uh, and the third is what you might call the realist part, which is, uh, which captures the ability of states to have an impact on the distribution of goods, right? Now, the endogenous variables are the state variables in a dynamic equation, which means they're the things that we're trying to explain. Um, And the first one is state activity. And by this, I mean all forms of activity designed to increase the security of the state. Um, Now, this is relevant to a wide range of questions. We often want to know, for example, when a state is going to be highly internationalist or highly isolationist. Um, We want to know when states initiate wars, build up arms, pursue aggressive foreign policies, so on and so forth. Now, this model will be able to answer that question in part. It should be able to tell you when states are going to be highly active and when they're going to be highly inactive. Um, It does not predict the form that that activity will take. Uh, That's not... An uninteresting question, but it 's a question that I think is is sort of not a systemic question and one that has to be dealt with with a different with a theory at a different level of analysis um, the status of the uh, i just read that That's, sorry it should be status of structure at time t rather than status of the system at time t um, now it's, it's worth noting here that even though we're talking about distributions of goods at the structural level, what matters often is one of the moments of the distribution of goods that uh, states care about. For example, I'll make the case in a few minutes that the key to understanding sort of balance of ideology uh, is taking a look at the mean of the distribution of ideologies within a given area. That is sort of on average how liberal or how Reactionary is the continent. Um, the key to the balance of power tends much more to be the standard deviation of the distribution of latent capabilities. that is, is everybody sort of narrowly clustered toward the same level of capabilities, or is there a wide dispersion of capabilities so even though we're talking about distributions at the structural level the the thing that matters to uh, constituents and therefore to decision makers is very often going to be one of the moments of those distributions. So let me throw up a simple system um, just to give you a sense of how this works. We'll have two actors, one dimension of interest, and a system in which joint gains are sort of theoretically possible. Um, this will not be on the test. Uh, I just I just put it up there because you're you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. I mean, if you don't, then someone comes up later and says, well, what does this model actually look like? And if you do, people sort of look at it and say, oh, that's what it looks like. You, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, Randy, you just, you, just, you just stole one of my jokes from the last slide. Uh, uh, um, it is a... <laughs> It is actually a straight. It's kind of funny. Uh, when people laugh, when I call it a simple system, I'm not sure why they're laughing, because some people think this is not at all simple, and some of them think, my God, you think you can capture something with, you know, something that incredibly trivial. Um, so, uh, again, if I keep both groups relatively equally balanced, I figure I'm, you know, pretty much walking the right line. but. The way things work here are pretty straightforward. In in English, a a change in an actor's level of activity, which is uh, these two right here, changes in levels of activity for states I and J, is determined by two things. How much the actor cares about a given structural dimension, and these are the little omegas, right? And how far that actor is from its ideal point in that dimension, and that's this distance right here. Squared to, f- to form a sort of a quadratic utility function. If either one of these is zero, right? If you really don't care about the distribution of power, or if you are at your ideal point for the distribution of power, you don't act to change anything, right? You're perfectly happy. That's that's the way this works, and that's the way that it works for your opponent as well. Um, now the system essentially gets It it reacts to the pushing and the shoving of the actors, right? And it reacts in proportion to four things. One is how much realized power you have. That's little pi, right? Um, If you are in an incredibly weak state, the system is not going to move very much no matter how hard you push. Um, Another is how active you are, which essentially is just how much you're pushing, right? Uh, and the other two are familiar from the previous equation. They are how much you care about whoops, yeah, how much you care about this de- this dimension of the system and how far you are from your ideal point point. and again, if any of those things is zero, the system doesn 't react to what you 're doing right? You can be completely powerless and pushing for all your worth and you 're not going to make a dent okay. that 's the logic behind the way the, the simple, this simple system is set up. Um, okay. Some hypotheses. Why am I offering you hypotheses? Um, it's not really because I firmly believe in hypothesis testing, which I'll make clear in a couple of minutes. Um, it's not because I lack a model, which I'll show you in, uh, uh, just before that. I think there are two reasons. One of them is, Uh, I want to give you a sense of the sort of comparative statics that you might expect. It's strange to talk about comparative statics in a dynamic model, but call them comparative dynamics, I guess. Uh, If you're doing uh, case studies and you you wanted to ask me the question, all right, uh, Taiwan becomes three times as powerful as it is now. What are the implications for the the international system? Um, Everything else being constant. Now, uh, everything else being constant is saying a lot in this particular case, because not much remains constant for very long. Um, the other reason is that I've, I find that, at least among my own crowd, the Peace Science Society types, there's this almost fetishism uh, revolving around hypotheses. I send in for an NSF grant uh, to get some assistance on the survey that I'm going to be talking about in a few minutes. And uh, one of the reviewers uh, who helped to sink that proposal, came back and said, you know, I can't believe that this project is as far along as it is and there aren't even any testable hypotheses. And I thought, you know, well, the model's right here. I've told you how I'm going to translate it into a statistical model and estimate it. What, you know, what more do you want? Um, So here are your damn hypotheses. (laughs) Um, These generally explain what's going to happen if there's a change in one part of the system and only one part of the system. And the question is, how are the effects going to reverberate throughout the system? I don't know. uh, Well, they're in the paper for those of you uh, who chose to sit in the back. Um, The answer sort of often makes some intuitive sense, right? Uh, The first systemic hypothesis basically says if you get weaker, you're going to lose ground, um, and you're going to have to try harder to get what you want. That's pretty straightforward. That's one of the few straightforward hypotheses to come out of this. Um, it also follows that if you get weaker, uh, your friends lose ground too and they have to try harder. Now I, I use some language here that I did realize I didn't define. I talked about, I talk about sympathetic states and antagonistic states. That doesn't actually translate out to friends and enemies. Um, the sympathetic state is a state whose ideal point falls on the same side of the status quo point as yours. So joint gains uh, for the two of you are possible, right? Meaning, uh, if you manage to move the status quo point toward yourself, that also benefits this other state. Um, Antagonistic states are the ones whose ideal points fall on different sides of the status quo point. So joint gains and losses are not possible, right? So that's what I mean when I'm talking about uh, uh, sympathetic and antagonistic states. The third hypothesis basically says if you change your worldview in such a way that you come to want more of what everyone else wants, everybody's going to have to fight harder for it. Okay. That's what it boils down to. Um, fourth hypothesis really points to if, if the two of us as two potentially competing states really want different things, we get them and we go our separate ways. If you've got a system in which one state is a John Mearsheimer offensive realist state, and another state is a Richard Rosecrans trading state. Uh, you know, you'll get the Mearsheimer state taking over the system uh, from the point of view of capabilities, but uh, you know, free trade everywhere um, for what it's worth. Um, given that you've <laughs> lost your uh, uh, independence, it might not it might be a small consolation that you get free trade everywhere, but. Uh, then the last one basically says, if your ideal point, ideal point shifts farther away from the status quo point, uh, you'll change the status quo in a way that makes sympathetic states work less and anti- antagonistic states work more. Okay? So in each case, what we're talking about is a change that takes place in an individual actor that will have an impact on the system and subsequently on that actor again and the other actors in the system. These are some examples of hypotheses. There are more in the uh, in the actual paper. So, um, how to go about testing this? As I said before, um, I'm not a huge fan of asterisks. Um, I actually have. <laughs> I remember attending a conference once, and I, I won't won't say who said this, but a, a prominent senior scholar got up and presented some results, and said, "You know, here are the results." And I ran it, and they were all significant on the first try. And I thought, "You know, how many tries does it usually take to get <laughs> to get that many asterisks?" You know, um, so. I tend to be much more of a fan of uh, the approach that's laid out in this paper by, I don't know if you guys have come across this, Kevin Clark and David Primo wrote a very interesting paper about, they've they've sort of cast it as a a friendly revision to the EITM movement, but the EITM people have not taken it in an especially friendly manner. Um, But the point that they lay out essentially is that what we're doing is building models of reality in the same way that map makers build models of reality to show us you know, what roads are like. You're leaving out essential features. What really you're interested in uh, is how helpful the map is from, in getting from point A to point B. Um, you're not really focused so much on the significance of any one variable. And this situation, I've sort of looked around, they they've, they listed a number of um, other people who had done work like this and, you know, disciplines in which this kind of philosophy prevails. And in microeconomics, in particular... Sorry, macroeconomics in particular, this is the kind of philosophy that you see. The idea there is you you come up with a model of the national economy, and what you care about is not any one particular beta or what the standard errors are like, but how well does the thing actually predict, and how well can your predictions be improved? Um, and so this, the same idea is going to happen here, although I will, uh, out of a sense of hidebound tradition, nevertheless present uh, coefficients and talk about them briefly. Um, so, first, what's the kind of world that we're going to try to model? Well, being a quantitative IR guy, I have to start at the beginning of history, which, of course, is 1815, um, which also happens to be the beginning of uh, a very interesting part of history, so I don't, I don't feel any necessary loss here. Um, so at the onset of the Vienna system, at least, historians talk, at least in my experience, talk mostly about two structural distributions. One is, of course, the distribution of power or latent capabilities. Right? And uh, the other is the distribution of ideology as realized in form of government. Uh, uh, one of the goals in the immediate um, uh, post uh, post-Vienna era was to keep the balance of power relatively tight, and to keep, so the goal being that um, uh, no one state, well, the goal varied depending on who you talked to. It ranged from uh, no one state should be, uh, the states should all have relatively equal uh, capabilities to no one state should successfully be able to threaten another, which if you believe in the three to one rule is actually significantly different from all states should have the same level of capability to uh, no power should be strong enough to defeat uh, all of its rivals plus a balancer who usually happened to be Britain. So there were sort of a wide range of of understandings of the balance of power that evolved over the course of the century. Um, At the beginning, uh, the norm was much more toward equality. Now as far as legitimacy is concerned, again, there were a range of ideals after Vienna. Um, The continent should be mostly autocratic. Uh, if you believe Metternich, uh, if you believe Nicholas I, and if you believe at least part of Alexander I, um, who being decidedly schizophrenic has to be talked about in at least, you know, two different ways. Um, Some states should be granted constitutions by enlightened despots, and this, I think, is the other part of Alexander I. Um, Or there should be more widespread constitutional governments, and this is the U.K. increasingly over time, and uh, France, increasingly on occasion, over time. Uh, so the equations for the system are derived from the general theory. Now, when I talked about this at uh, APSA, Brian Pollins was there, and he asked me uh, if I have if I'm presenting a model or a family of models, which was an interesting question. And I thought about it a little bit, and I think. The answer is what I have is a model-generating function in the same way that if you have a distribution, you can have a moment-generating function, right? Plug in the the relevant actors and the relevant uh, structural attributes, and it will generate a model of the system for you. So this is the model-generating function. Um, You fill in uh, M and I yourself which are balance of power and what I've called sort of shorthand balance of ideology, Uh, you fill in the major actors, and this is your model. Um, Oh, K. I should mention K. There's some control dummies for exogenous shocks. Um, In the real world, there are occasionally exogenous shocks that really mess up the error term, and... Uh, if you don't do something about that, it'll mess up your predictions and your coefficients and everything else. So you want to control for them. They're not sort of theoretically interesting, but you want to have them in there essentially as a, almost a second error term uh, just to take care of that extra variance. The Crimean War is a good example. You'll see when we take a look at the level of activity series, uh, in particular in Russia, you'll see sort of a gradual decline in, in uh, levels of activity and then boom, during the Crimean War, and then once the Crimean War is done, boom, right back down to where they were before. Um, and you want to control for that, even though you don't want to claim that as sort of a success success for your model. Um, there are two data sources here. The first are the standard IR data sets, the correlates of war and polity four, and these are for capabilities and for uh, openness of government. The problem is, Uh, for ideal points and for salience, um, it's pretty much impossible to find comparable historical data. And I spent a while spinning my wheels trying to figure out how exactly I could do this. Looked briefly into party platforms, which unfortunately uh, (laughs) the Russians, among others, did not put out. Um, And even the British only go back uh, so far. Um, Historical documents from which you might do content analysis are here and there in sort of little pockets. But unfortunately, they tend not to be very comparable uh, cross-nationally, which is a very substantial issue. So in the end, what I did was I ran a survey of historians who had uh, expertise in the foreign relations of these states at these times and asked them questions that I designed to reflect the quantities of interest in the study. For those of you considering doing this, think twice, Um, it can be a genuine pain, uh, much, much more so than I had realized when I started doing it. Uh, I did this as, I I made the initial contact via email, and I had not realized how much people take the medium of email, uh, some people, a small subset of people, Take the fact that you're communicating via email as an excuse for just flat-out rudeness, um, which is never pleasant. Um, I actually had one. This is one of my favorite interactions from this whole uh, from this whole survey. So, uh, a historian wrote to me and said, "You know, uh, tell me what this is all about, and tell me who's you know making money off of it, and da da da, you know, and and, uh, and maybe I'll answer your questions." So I wrote back this very. Patient detailed things and said, "Look, I'm doing this out of my own research funds. Uh, trust me, I'm not making money off it uh, in any way, shape, or form, unless you consider con- continued employment to be uh, you know a form of money." Um, and just you know tried to answer every question as as carefully as I could. And the first sentence of the the response that I got back, the first six words were, "You must think I'm a real," and I'm not going to tell you what the seventh word was. But it was really ripe. And and this person was absolutely right. I was actually <laughs> I thought yeah I actually was of that impression. And you know I'm happy to have you uh, change it now. But um, another response I got you know was uh, I don't answer email from strangers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. One of them was uh, you know I'm I'm running uh, and this is again a small subset, but a number of people said you know I, I'm running Internet Explorer version 0.1 on a Flintstones laptop with a little bird that pecks out the, you know, on a stone screen, and somehow I can't get your survey to work. So I in those cases I, you know, mailed them off. Fortunately, there were quite a few people who were helpful, willing, informative. My favorite was someone who wrote but not only filled in the survey that I sent, but handed, but sent me back nearly 12 pages of handwritten explanation. Uh, explaining why it is that this point had changed here and not there, and what exactly was meant by this, and so on and so forth. I almost cried when I opened it. I, I thought, my God, you know, this is this is really above and beyond what's expected uh, from a participant in this. Now, I've put up a, uh, a brief example of one of the questions from the survey. Um, probably all of you are not going to be able to read it. It's a, it's a question about salience. It tries to. Um, match the logic of the quadratic loss function. It says, you know, how wide or narrow were the range of acceptable outcomes uh, in this area for leaders of this state at this time? And I didn't ask them to go through and, and, you know, put one dot in for every year. What I did was say, all right, please just put in uh, a dot whenever there was a change, right? And happily enough, I, I found someone who could write a very simple program that would fill in the lines, you know, between the dots that they put. Um, generally, what I did was to take the mean of the responses that I got i 've tried to keep an eye out um, I mean ideally, you would want to look out for things like bimodal distributions, which would tell you that you know maybe there 's an historical controversy that is re- that is manifesting itself as sort of polarized answers uh, to this particular question right um, in this in this case that we 're going to be looking at today. I didn't find any evidence of that, but also the the n was sort of lower the farther you go back, so it was difficult to sort of say with great certainty uh, one way or the other. So, um, what are the what are some of the empirical results? Um, and I say preliminary, um, because Brian, who's Probably forgotten more about time series than I'll ever know. It may very, very well tell me that uh, uh, there's a lot more that a lot that could be improved upon here. But the basic idea for the estimation, well, a few things result from the fact that I wrote down the model that I believe in, rather than a model that's easy to estimate, um, which is some colleagues tell me a rookie mistake. I I um, tend to well. I don't know if I'm going to keep doing things this way. I hope I will. Uh, one of them is you have identification issues that preclude estimating any coefficients on individual variables. So if you're looking for something like what's the coefficient on the power variable, you can't really tell that. Um, another is that there's a lack of a common scale for these guys, for the new of c and for the s. They don't sort of naturally come in the same units, right? If they did, I could just subtract one from the other and we could estimate that term. Um, As it is, what I have to do is break them down into uh, two separate terms and estimate them. Now, the problem with those two separate terms is, as you might guess, uh, they're heinously correlated, so you get a substantial amount of multicollinearity, as I mentioned in the paper. Um, This is not a huge issue for prediction, which is the main focus that I mentioned before. Uh, it's more of an issue for estimation of the coefficients because what you get is big, fat, standard errors, and people who like asterisks really don't like big, fat, standard errors. Um, So uh, the actual estimation itself, the data are differenced for a couple of reasons. That just means we're looking at changes in the level of the variable rather than the actual level of the variable. Uh, It makes sense because it it matches the theory and it induces stationarity in a couple of... uh, Series that are definitely non stationary in levels. Um, I use three different estimators. Uh, these estimators are the three that are most commonly used in sort of the macroeconomic literature for systemic general equilibrium models of this kind. Um, OLS, everybody has, uh, knows or has at least heard of. Uh, three stage least squares and full information and maximum likelihood are systemic estimators. Uh, meaning they estimate the entire system all at once rather than just sort of one equation at a time. The advantage is that they can capture things like cross-correlations that might be having some impact on your on your coefficients. The disadvantage is that if something goes wrong in one part of the system, it can pollute the entire rest of the system, right? There's um, it an additional disadvantage to full information maximum likelihood, the additional assumption that you've got sort of normal error terms? Uh, which isn't always the case, and you don't need to assume any others. So in practice, it's pretty hard to know which one is going to be best suited to a particular system of equations without trying them out. So I tried them out. And here are the results. This is the structural series for balance of power from 1815 to 1914 and balance of what you call realized ideology. Balance of power shows a trend toward imbalance in the first half of the century, trend back toward balance in the second half of the century as Germany is approaching the UK in terms of relative capabilities. Uh, Abrupt leveling out around 1900, which is uh, consistent with the arms racing behavior that was uh, occurring at that time. So this more or less passes the interocular strike test. Um, Balance of, sorry? I'm sorry. The y-axis is uh, the degree of imbalance of power, which is actually the standard deviation of the uh, standardized measure of capabilities. Right. So as you go higher on the y-axis, the distribution gets wider. Um, balance of ideology shows gradual liberalization. Um, you do see, as you'd expect, a significant uptick in uh, 1848 and not much in 1849. Um So, these at least give you a, a sense of uh, of what these series look like. so, for some predictions um the predictions are made in differences, uh, as I mentioned before, so there's no natural starting point so what I did essentially was start at with the value at t one uh predict changes using only the coefficients and the and uh, variables, never the level of the variable at any t after. One. So essentially, you're asking, all right, given the model and the value of the variable at the beginning, what do I predict for the entire period? Right. Um, then at the end, you adjust the mean of the series to find the most reasonable starting point for the for the prediction. Now, as you can see, this is the full information li- maximum likelihood model, which is, uh, from a technical point of view, ideally the <clears throat> superior one. Um, it makes pretty reasonable predictions on both uh, on both accounts. If you look at the three-stage least-squares predictions, those work out to be fairly reasonable as well. Um, You get slight errors sometimes. uh, They're a little bit south of the real series in the mid to late 1800s. But for the most part, these are reasonable predictions. Um, And OLS, again make some very reasonable predictions. So if you compare the three, there really isn't a whole lot to choose among the three of them in terms of performance, Uh, at least not judging by what we can see with the naked eye. And the results are, I'd argue, pretty good. They follow the actual series reasonably well. Um, So the upshot is that all three estimators here make very reasonable predictions. Is not going to be the case when we look at levels of activity for the states. Uh, This is British, French, Prussian, Austrian, and Russian. Um, The Prussian series is kind of, I'll take a brief moment to mention that. Um, I was struck by the, uh, well, flatness of the Prussian series prior to the early 1850s. And my initial reaction was that somehow in the cleaning of the data set, I had missed uh, someone who had just, you know, clicked, a, you know, one thing at the beginning of each series to get through the survey and, and had just given up on it. Um, I found one or two of those, but they weren't in this time period. So I thought, all right, I, you know, I missed somebody. But it turns out this is a situation of uh, multiple historians. There are actually three, um, who, all of whom said the series was flat up until the early 1850s and then described a sort of an uptick after that. And so I've got this sort of dilemma. On the one hand, three is not a huge number. I'd really like to have more than that. Um, But on the other, you do have three historians telling you, all telling you the same thing. They've told me this in different waves of the survey. Um, They were different people. So I've chosen essentially to go with the, uh, uh, with what the historians said without, Uh, You know, I'm I'm reluctant to throw out that information without very good reason. So let's look at the predictions. The full information maximum likelihood prediction uh, in two cases pretty much stinks. Um, If you look at British, levels of British activity, it grossly underpredicts in the first part of the period, grossly overpredicts in the second part of the period. If you look at levels of French activity, you get the same kind of pattern, right? The remaining series are less bad, uh, less egregiously bad uh, in any case. Um, So let's look at three-stage least squares. And we have less stinkitude in the uh, the British series. Uh, Still the French, um, perhaps in revenge for all those jokes when I told I was at Chicago, uh, persistently Refuse to conform to the pattern that I had hoped they would. Um, but the remaining predictions are actually getting substantially better. And we look at the OLS predictions. Um, and on France, the OLS predictions stink less. Uh, and actually, on the rest of them, starting to look pretty reasonable in general. You're not capturing the noise in the series, but you're capturing the general tendencies, right? You're capturing points at which uh, uh, you get an inflection, where you start stop going down, start going up, something along those lines. Um, but they follow the series actually reasonably well. Um, so the upshot basically is, if you look at all of them together, it's pretty clear just looking at the three series that OLS wins. Um, It's also fairly clear that the state series is not predicted as well as the structural series. But in the best case, uh, the predictions are not all that bad and actually sometimes are quite good. So can we formalize this a little bit? We can take a look at Thiel's inequality coefficient, which is often used in the macroeconomic uh, literature to to gauge model fit. It has sort of an intuitive appeal because it ranges from zero, which is the best possible model, to one, which is the worst possible. Um, And you can see that uh, it confirms what our eyes told us. OLS beat the other two in five out of seven cases. Um, And that OLS predictions are fairly good in relative and absolute terms, Um, which just goes to confirm something I tell my students quite often, which is the more I learn about statistics, the more I like OLS and crosstabs. OK, here are the OLS results. Um, for those of you who are concerned about um, levels of statistical significance, you can say a couple of things. Roughly half the model coefficients reach a significance of uh, level of 10% or better, despite the fact that, as I mentioned before, this is a system that's fairly hostile to estimation. Um, F-tests for joint significance of the coefficients all indicate significance at the point zero zero five level um, or better. Estimated coefficients are of the expected sign in 42 out of 55 instances, which if, uh, if we were flipping a coin, it would be extremely unlikely to come up with 42 out of 55 going in the right direction. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about statistical significance. I already feel kind of dirty, so I'm going to stop. Um, so what are the conclusions at this point? Well, um, mainly that it merits further study. At least I hope it does, because this is what I'm going to spend my summer doing. Uh, But also, we can at least sort of tentatively say a few more things than that. Um, First, it's a new systemic theory of IR, arguably. It makes solid predictions about some things that really interest us, right? Balance of power, balance of ideology, and the levels of activity of states. And it does so all in one model. And the results are pretty good ones, for the most part. Um, It puts together some worthwhile insights about politics that haven't been combined before. In this sense, I'm sort of standing on the shoulders of some of the biggest giants in the field. Um, And it makes them work as a cohesive whole. Uh, Finally, well, not finally, it also explains, and this is something I didn't do here, it's something I did more in the APSA paper, uh, explains how existing theories can be modeled as special cases of this one, that is, uh, you, can did, you can do sort of a Waltzian world or a mere world or a world in which uh, socialization among states has an impact on their worldviews. Um, you can model all of these and you can work out their implications. Right? And I did some of that in the apps of paper. I'll be happy to send along to anyone who's interested. We just didn't have time to talk about it today. Um, other conclusions are, I think it captures uh, ordered complexity well the result is uh, this is where I was going to get the laugh, Randy. A model that's relatively simple, um, but uh, but it's true. It is a relative, you know, on on the scale of simple to complex models, it is pretty straightforward. Uh, at the same time, it predicts reasonably well. It provides a good map uh, to what's actually going on in, in these series. Um, so, what that means is it achieves the main goals of modeling, right? It's plausible, it's realistic, and there's a good balance between parsimony and realism. Certainly, it could be tailored more to specific cases to anticipate probably a couple of the questions that I'll be getting. And that's one of the things that I'm planning on doing in the case study part of the book. Uh, But for now, this is sort of what I've got, you know, hardwired into the large end part. Um, And that really is it. Thanks for sticking around. I'd be happy to hear your thoughts. <coughs> Am I Oh, I, go ahead. You had your hand up first. Oh, uh, I must say this has been a fascinating presentation. And I think it's a photographic powerful. Um, <laughs> Please, keynote. <laughs> uh, this is, I think you're doing a new piece of life uh, on systemic theory. And my question is, <coughs> sorry, uh, two of your
3: notations, M and N, and their values. Which M and N, M and N. Well, okay. legitimacy or ideology and, and power? I'm wondering uh, how did you actually survey historians and got those two things uh, from them, or did you actually decide that these two distributions are what it matters to
0: states?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. the, the, so that's right. The question is how did how did I come up with these? Did I just right. sort example, of make them up? In the crisis, Right. And my question is yeah, yeah. Religion? okay, so uh, I read through a fair bit of the historical and historiographical literature in the period, and was invo- it, that was a difficult choice to make for precisely those reasons. You do get a lot of people writing about the distribution of religion <laughs> na- nationalism, especially obviously right, um, and so when I started out, I was trying to cast a, a net you know as broadly as I could. Um, And when I did the pre-testing, I got into some very interesting conversations with some of the the historians who did the pre-testing. And they led me to some literatures that I hadn't sort of been aware of. One of them was, and you take the case of nationalism, for example. uh, The argument was that really nationalism tended to be used in more of an instrumental fashion. That really when you're looking at national movements, their ultimate goals were things like political independence or things like greater power for the state, right? Um, as a matter of fact, one of the people I talked to described it as being like a, a computer virus. And I think what he meant was more sort of a symbiote—you know—that latches onto, uh, you know, ex- uh, parts of worldviews that uh, are pre-existing. So, in the end, I left out the question about nationalism because I thought, you know, these things are capturing it fairly well. Um, the other, uh, the other cases were, um, you know, when I found structural dimensions that didn't seem to have extremely consistent uh, realization over time throughout the period. You know, they might have cared about one thing for ten years, but not for the entire period. Um, so this is my own admittedly idiosyncratic uh, reading of the literature of the period and attempt to sort of narrow it down to the to the basics. Um, yeah, I, I can only imagine what I would have gotten back had I sort of said, fill in the blank and then tell me how much they cared about it. I, I mean, I mean this is this was scary enough as it is. Um, John, did you Yeah would
0: you uh, explain a little bit more detail uh, the the historian surveys you're trying to measure ideology, the differences in ideology and power.
1: What did no. you measure No, what I'm not I'm not what I'm what I was asking were not uh, sort of how, what were the capabilities of the state. That I got from the Correlates of War data set and I wasn't asking, you know, uh, in terms of ideology what, uh, you know, how, ide- how le- constitutional or legitimist was the uh, uh, continent at this time. That was the polity of data. What I asked the historians to do was to say, all right, here's a, here's a spectrum. Right? And it ranges from, let's say, all states have really absolutely equal levels of capabilities. Major states. Right? The great powers. To... Uh, they have such disparate levels of, you know, the, the most disparate levels of capabilities permissible that still allow a balancer to come in and play the, play the role of balancer. So on that spectrum, um, first of all, where would you put the ideal point of both the leaders and the constituents of the state uh, at this time? And the rela- I didn't talk about the relationship between what the constituents wanted and what the leadership wanted. That's in the, the That's paper, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. And there's a, there's a graph in the paper that shows what those relationships are. And for the most part, uh, the, the sort of very, very simple vanilla probabilistic voting model works. Um, there are a few cases in which it doesn't. I mean, obviously, constituents are uh, a bit more liberal than than leaderships in just about every you know, uh, state that you look at in most time periods. But um, on the whole, they get it roughly right. Um, and then you know sort of once, once they had charted the, the ideal point of the constituents and the leaders over time, then go back and say, all right, how much did this matter to them, the entire issue of the balance of material capabilities? Um, and that was a question that I put up where it said you know, how wide or narrow uh, were there, was their outlook on? It? I mean, I essentially said, uh, were a very wide range of outcomes acceptable to them from the point of national security? In which case, they really don't care about it very much, or would they only accept a very very narrow range of outcomes? That is, you know, are they do they are they really passionate about where exactly that uh, the status quo point is? So those were the kinds of questions that I asked them. They got translated into. Little omega and uh, uh, nu of C in the model. Randy, with some trepidation. The model seems to me it's, uh, aging, privileged uh, structure.
3: And, and sort of counterintuitive and powerful. And, you know, we could just go through them about emulation, uh, socialization, uh, all kinds of insights. And I, I guess I, I don't, I'm not I'm missing the causal mechanism here. I, I'm missing what the insights, the novel insight is. I mean, it seems like we did very well, but I'm not quite sure if that's just a problem that there's no causal distance. I don't, I don't know what the causal distance is. But, <laughs> What I'm, I'm what sorry. The, I'm
1: sorry. The causal distance? The distance,
3: right? Like you, you know. I mean, you might be just. You, your mom may be very descriptive, and so you are putting a lot of information in, and so your the causal distance isn't very great. The okay. okay. The point is, what what would you say of the novel instance? I mean, where do you get it right, and Waltz gets it wrong? Or, I mean, why do we need this? What what are the mice that you're capturing that he doesn't capture? Okay.
1: Um. Well, in terms of the. Uh, A, I suspect you'd have a hard time making the kinds of concrete predictions that you can make with this model, whether they're right or wrong, right? Um, Just in terms of the levels of all the variables that I've talked about. So that, but that's at sort of the macro level. If I understand you correctly, you're interested more in the micro level. Um, And the kinds, the, the hypotheses that I put up were the kinds of hypotheses that, I mean, sometimes may seem obvious in retrospect. Right, but they're not in Waltz's book, and I haven't seen them anywhere else. Um, Third point is I mentioned um, briefly that at APSA I had done some kind of, you know, here's what Waltz's world would look like if you put it into this model, and, you know, what are the results that you get out of it? And sometimes you get actually fairly surprising results, and one of them was that you can't predict a balance of power starting from all of the uh, conditions that Waltz says obtained uh, obtain in his world right so if you want you know different predictions from waltz i can essentially make this into a Waltzian model show you what it predicts and explain how the predictions are different from what waltz predicts but that's not sort of the main enterprise that i'm that i'm engaging in what would be the bumper sticker i mean i know it's a terrible thing to ask me no that's right
3: what is the bumper sticker sort of you know, one liner that insight that you
1: have that's driving this model. The bumper sticker? You mean something like power matters or ideology matters or, or
3: what? Or if you read this, you'd
1: be home by now. Uh, you know,
3: what? What is it that I'm, I'm, just, I'm just missing. It. I'm not saying you don't have it. I just don't see it. I'm missing it. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry? I'm sorry.
1: Oh, the take-home point—that um, you—it <laughs> um, actually is no. That's that's an interesting question. One of the things that I've had difficulty with is kind of boiling this down to a bumper sticker, um, for precisely that reason. Because you know, this is the international system is a big, complicated thing, and you need to model it in order to understand it. But that doesn't really get people's you know blood pumping in the way that. Uh, that you try to, I guess, you know, the analogy that I used earlier just briefly touched on uh, with the solar system, right? I mean, you don't get too many people uh, studying the solar system and saying, well, okay, here's what we need to do. Let's look at Earth and Mars, right? How do they interact? That's going to tell us, you know, a lot about their relative paths. Well, no, it's not, because it's a system, and you need to study it like a system. Um, So I guess if I had to have a bumper sticker, I'd I'd respond to David Singer by saying it's the system dummy. Um, But uh, I don't know that there's a much more concise way of boiling it down than that. Ted.
2: You mentioned system. How was your case of system being excluded the United States and Japan? Now, in your read-up, in your assumption, you said, I quoted, I guess, um, the behavior of each actor matters. It, you somehow, I don't know, whether a theoretical, empirical, or just a con- convenient basis for excluding the US and Japan from your empirical world. In a certain sense, you create a European subsystem. When yep. you do the objective measurement, the US power transcends all by the 1880s. Mm-hmm. So where, where is the system? Right. I mean, what you really described is a community of states. Right. Uh, a subsystem, if you will, not the international system. And to me really, it, it does violence to um, you know this idea that uh, you're starting with each actor matter. I mean you're, the reason why the solar system the reason why all the states of the solar system matter is that well, all the states in the solar system matter. Right. And indeed that that star, you know, two billion light years away matters too. Right. And yet the US isn't two billion light years away in nineteen fourteen. Right. right? So how do you do
1: this? Well it's no a small consolation to say it matters in 1918. <laughs> when I, get to, when I get to that part of the, cha- it, the chapter. It definitely matters. Um, it's a good question as to sort of where you draw the line in terms of who's able to have some influence. I mean, there are a lot of people who would, you know, argue that uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire had a very substantial influence in the, you know, European politics at that time. Um, uh, there's no, there really isn't any rule. I mean, what I attempted to do was to look at, yeah, go ahead. But
2: isn't this a big part of the problem? Is that you're kind of circular in a way. You're using, like, the perceptions of the decision makers to specify who the actors are that matter, but you're claiming that a systemic theory that is, that's abstracted away from those. In fact, you're going to a priori claim that the distribution of what matters allows you to specify the actors, but what matters is actually how the actors specify what matters. When did
1: I look at the... Perceptions of decision making Yeah, I'm
2: wondering when. How I didn't. Did you, how, well, you just said that. You, that. that uh, you know, how you How did you get to the How did you get to the point of determining that the U.S. didn't matter in 1918? If, if by looking at objective power measurements in the course of the war, we know that it mattered a lot in 1880.
1: Right. Um, well, first of all, those objective power. I mean, we can argue forever about what exactly. Um, those objective power measures mean when you've got the Atlantic Ocean sitting in between. I mean, if you use Bolding's laws of strength gradient, for example, you know, I think the U.S. might have worked its way up to the level of Switzerland by that time, but... Um, I mean, essentially there wasn't... I guess if you go back to the solar system analogy, um, you know, the initial reading of the literature leads you to believe that, you know, these are the big five uh, uh, planets in the system, and the rest of them are essentially moons or, you know, too far away to exert much of a pole. Um, And so those are the five that you go with. It's not that the others are completely irrelevant. uh, It's just that you can't, you know, I mean, if, if you're complaining about this model being complicated, You know, how many states are there in Europe at that time? Uh, It'd be just about impossible to try to uh, uh, put all of them into play. So what I was trying to do, essentially, is um, come up with a model that deals with the implications of the behavior of the five major actors in the European subsystem at that time. Um, And I'll take a look. I'll be curious to see... uh, I mean, I've, my my initial look at the U.S. both in terms of the, the correlates of war numbers and the, uh, uh, the diplomatic uh, history literature suggested that I wouldn't actually benefit very much from putting it into the model. But I'll take another look at it and see what see if there's a reinterpretation there, Alex. Um, this is actually related to that question. And I, I want to
2: make a comment and then ask two quick questions. And the comment
0: to do is that the way you're thinking about systems to me, it was very reminiscent of Waltz, in the sense that it was, it seems like a very uh, individualistic or aggregational approach to systems. Start mm-hmm. start with distributions across actors and sort of work upward from there, rather than thinking of the structure of the system as some
2: kind of a more macro level, emergence um, fact that somehow constitutes the units
0: installed in like right. my language
1: or whatever. Right, right.
0: Um, so I guess I'm wondering, was that a conscious choice or was this sort of just, the way you sort of naturally came to think about systems. Um, Sort of individualistic versus holistic. And the other question is, in your mind, is there anything fundamentally different between a natural system and a social system? Apart from the fact that the units of social systems maybe have ideas and beliefs and that kind of thing. But it seems like a very naturalistic way of thinking about social systems. And again, is that sort of a conscious, are you actually making sort of a a self-conscious metaphysical choice there? Or
2: is this just the way things are done in a quantitative
1: um, <laughs> I mean, can I justify this by referring to all the other perverts who do the same kind of work that I do? Um, well, let me take these in order. Um, the, uh, the way that I built this up, really I sort of started out by looking at... I mean, I had this insight that we could try to understand systemic politics by bringing in chunks of uh, uh, understandings of the constituent units and parts of how these things work from other parts of the political science literature. Um, as It's not quite as bald as what Ken Shepsley said to me once, which is, when I start working on a project, my first question is, who can I steal from? Um, but I thought, you know, what, what do we already think we know about uh, these? the the way that the individual parts of these uh, things work. And when I put those together there was some leeway but for the most of the sort of initial forays that uh, I came up with ended up looking fairly mechanistic uh, rather than holistic. And I mean I don't know that it was sort of a conscious choice on my part. I didn't set out to make it that way but it just seemed that when I put together the parts of the Political science literature that uh, uh, people who worked on them uh, seemed to believe in, that I ended up with a system that was like this. Uh, Now, it might be that if I had started out on a project like this in uh, sociology, I might have ended up with an entirely different uh, system, a different way of looking at the world. Um, But, you know, the public choice people, for example, are, you know, very much. Uh, mechanistic in that regard. Um, that said, I really am interested in, I mean, I sort of mentioned in passing, interested in the implications of uh, potential implications of more social aspects of the international system and how they, you know, what they actually do in terms of this model. And that's something that I'm thinking through both in the sort of simulations uh, part and in the, uh, we'll be thinking through in the case studies. The second question, um, actually, I think that answered both questions, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry.
0: So much free ideology, yeah. that's, that's power. Yeah. That's power. Yeah. That's, power. Yeah. that's right. All right. I'm trying to make sure I understand your model. Maybe it's it's sort of along the lines of Randy's question about the core contribution here, but for a long time in IR theory, before Waltz, there was a concern about force activation. In other words, how hard you exert power. We all understood uh, that power alone, in terms of maximum capability, is either turned on or turned off or turned on to certain degrees. Morton Kaplan had this notion of parametric value Mm -hmm. in his systems theory to try to capture the urgency that states felt the need to act with. So to sort of, have this exponent that would sort of uh, modify power. And it seems like you're moving in a lot that same direction and you're trying to get this force activation component uh, from two things. This historian's judgment on the urgency to act Mm -hmm. or the, the the sense that we have how far you are from the ideal point. You, you express it in different language, but what I see you getting to is the same bottom line. Leaders feel they need to move when what they prefer is far away from what is. Mm-hmm. And when, and then you have this constituency. And you, you didn't have time to tell us too much about how this interacts. That is, constituency right. distance from ideal right. versus leader distance from ideal, and right. you kept reluding a little. Motor model, I guess. Yeah. But but I'm wondering whether once you fill in by uh, intellectual fiat, which is what you've done, Mm -hmm. you've gone to historians and just said, "Tell me how much urgency these systems felt they needed to move with."
1: You mean the, the actors?
0: Yeah, the actors. Right. Then most of the work's being done by power again, because you've already. If you fix by historical knowledge what the force activation component is, and I, and I guess what, what what would be the danger? That the reason we're getting such good predictions is that historians know perfectly well when these states moved, and are just telling you, look, you know, they felt an urgency to act when they acted. That's the problem. Of and, and that the, the problem. you're, you're you know, basically your historians have you know created a tautology for you in here, in, in they know when these states move, they told you they needed to move, and they're telling you, well, you know, they must have really thought they needed to move badly because that's when they moved. <laughs> and it's a revealed preference that you're now taking as the input. Right. I, I guess it's a long and not as precisely the no, 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 no. framed this... question as I would have hoped, but I'm curious uh, what you think about all that. Well, in
1: order for them to do that, they would need to understand both components, well, all all components of the model. First of all, because um, if I, you know, I make this prediction that the the uh, you know the actors are going to to change the levels of activity based on a few different components, right? And the way that those components interact can tell you something entirely different than any one of them would have suggested. Number one. Well, now,
0: are the historians telling you that at this moment I, I couldn't read those grids well enough? Yeah. Cared a lot about you know, nutmeg, and in this moment, France cared more about gold. Or are they just telling you in this moment France felt that it needed to move? There that that was a big distance between its preferred point in these they, they never
1: said at this point France needed to move, anything like that. What they what they said was at this point France cared a lot about nutmeg, a little about nutmeg, a lot of you know so on and, and so you forth. Gave them the nutmeg, the power, right, exactly. Second thing they said was, here is France's ideal point in terms of the amount of nutmeg that it had in the system, or something along those lines, okay? So in order to, but what they did not give me was the distance from the ideal point to the actual measure of what the level of that thing was in the system, right? So if I had said how close to or how far away from their ideal point were they? And then I would imagine, yes, you know they 'd look at that and say, "Well, gee, they were really you know fired up about it. They must have been far away from their ideal point, and there 's a, there's a potential great potential for tautology there, but all I, all I asked them for was an ideal point without any reference to how close or far away that ideal point was from the actual status of the system so i 've tried as carefully as I can to make these questions not uh, uh, you know, immediately correlate with one another for, for tautological reasons. As a matter of fact, when you run correlations among the various series, you don't find very big numbers, which you would expect if I were asking, you know, tautological, tautological questions.
3: But you said the interaction of those things would come out very different than what you might expect, and that's the question I was asking. Those, I don't think you highlight in your talk what those novel things are that you, your model
1: works out. Okay. Um, I'll give you another example. Uh,
0: no, that's No, no, no. I, I will, since I asked the question and kept us all longer, uh, I'll let someone else have. Well, I will ask. Someone else oh. wants to ask a question. Well, yeah. There's,
1: there's this huge literature on isolationism, as you know, having <laughs> uh, worked on at least one project on the subject, and a tremendous amount of it focuses on things like, uh, you know. Midwestern isolationism, the relative attitudes of men and women and so on and so forth within the United States, right? And what this model will tell you as just one example um, is that your state's level of activity can vary tremendously based on another state's worldview, right? It may be that the U.S. in the interwar period and the U.S. in the Cold War period was precisely the same state, right? Um, nothing inside that state changed to make it from uh, an international from an isolation state to an international state um, and this is I ran into well peter trubowitz didn 't like this answer at all when I gave it a few years ago but um, so there 's you know one entire chunk of literature that you can say, look you've, you really need to look outside the borders of the u s and here 's a systemic theory that can tell you uh, how it is that the u s is going to respond. Right, when you have some change in some other part of the system, it's not long. It's the, the, the
0: guilty party. <laughs>
3: I'll have, a, I'll have a two quick questions. Oh, God. But one is uh, a follow up for Rick. Uh, I'm sorry? Rick, one question is a follow up for what Rick asked you. Uh, in terms of uh, the constituents systems, the <laughs> politics, yep. part, are, they to be important in the first part of the talk, and then when you move, the empiric comes was wondering.
1: Okay, second second question first. Um, state activity uh, was one of the well there were two ways that I measured state activity. Uh, one was I asked the historians sort of how uh, you know, taking into account all forms of activity designed to increase the security of the state. How, how active was the state during this period, right? And asked them to chart that. The second was I took a number of uh, variables, uh, things like alliance behavior, militarized interstate disputes, so on and so forth, and tried sort of data reduction uh, exercise in various ways, right? um, factor analysis and so on. And tried to figure, tried to come up with a series that looked like it, you know, ad- accurately reflected uh, levels of state activity. Then what I did was sort of chart them side by side for each of the states in the in the system. And when I looked at the series, I found myself—I mean, they actually converged for a fair bit of the time. Most of the time, they were fairly close. When they diverged, I found myself believing the historians more than I believed the the, uh, the factor analysis data. So, I mean, for example, the the uh, construct that I put together out of objective indicators told me that there was no increase in levels of state activity from you know, 1895 to 1914, which I just didn't believe at all. Um, so, on the whole, when there were divergences between the two, I ended up using the, the historians. For, for that reason, I ended up using the historians. So, as far as um, the constituents mattering, in the large-end analysis, Um, the assumption is essentially made that their preferences are transmitted uh, correctly to the leaders, right? Um, And that's, as as that one graph that I mentioned earlier in the paper shows, mostly on. um, What's going to matter, I think, more in the... It is going to matter a lot more in the case study part of the the book, where I take a look at, you know, let's say the, the early 1800s. And the French electoral system was, you know, consistently biased toward bringing back more extreme right-wing members to the cabinet than uh, than a purely representative system would have been. Um, so in those cases, then the uh, the way that preferences aggregate is going to make a much more substantial difference.
0: Yeah, we run the risk of going on well past when we normally stop, and the coop is dissipating. So I want to bring it to a close before there's no one left to thank you because <laughs> <laughs> I really do thank you and it's been great to have you here and I'm sure that John Mueller's book will look just like this uh, <laughs>
3: next <laughs> <time> our... <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> but Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Robert.